everybody. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Tom. I'm here with Jamie Metzel. Jamie, I am super excited to talk to you about your book, Hacking Darwin. Uh, as I said, I was completely captivated by that book and what's possible with the human genome and all that good stuff. So, man, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Really happy to be here. Cool. Well, give the um, listeners a just super quick um, thumbnail sketch of what Hacking Darwin is about. And because this is as opposed to some of the science fiction stuff you've done, this is all science fact. Right. So what was it that made you want to write this book? So first question, the book, I mean, if, if there's just a takeaway for people, um, our ancestors, they thought biology was just something that happens. You, you get born somehow. Uh, now, suddenly, our one little group of monkeys who climbed down from the trees, suddenly <clears throat> we have this ability to read, write, and hack the code of life, like th these superpowers that we've imagined are gods having to create life, to change life, to extend life. Suddenly, we have it, and it's going to fundamentally transform so many aspects of our lives, not just healthcare, um, but the, the way we make babies, the nature of the babies that we make, and ultimately, our evolutionary trajectory as a species and that really scares people because people say, like, well, wait a second, I'm a homo sapien. I like being a homo sapien. But when you kind of imagine uh, the, the whole range, the, the, the temporal range of human evolution, we've only been this for about 300,000 years, which is kind of nothing. So it was never, this was never the end point of our evolution. Um, but I think a, for a long, long time, people haven't imagined that we were going to be the drivers of our evolutionary process on a on a biological level and that that's kind of the essence of the moment i mean hacking darwin tells this whole story you know, from beginning to you know there's no end but uh, into uh, into the future but but that's essentially what the core message of hacking darwin one thing that i found really interesting about the book is you talk about if we were to reach back into our past a thousand years and bring either an embryo or an infant and then raise them in the modern world we would they'd be indistinguishable from you know who we are today but if we were to reach a thousand years into the future and bring that person back they would essentially be superhuman compared to what we have now and i want to stress again for people that are listening to this what we're about to go into at least this part we, we may talk mm -hmm. about science fiction as well but this is science fact. This is shit that is happening right now. Um, yeah. what, what is it, do you think, in terms of the person a thousand years in the future, even just sort of extrapolating on technology that's real and being used today, what would be superhuman about them? So lots of, uh, of different things. And I think it's, it's really hard for people to get their mind around this, the, uh, this point, which I write about in the book. If you were to go back and kidnap some kid from a thousand years ago and just put him into our lives, like, we would have no way of, I mean, they would just be exactly like us in, in pretty much every way. Um, but that kid in a thousand years into the future is going to live longer, healthier, more robust life. They probably weren't born by their parents fornicating. Um, they were probably born because uh, through, through a, a process in a lab, um, almost certainly they were the result of their embryo being selected from among thousands, I mean, which right now there is a process of uh, of selection in the sense that that when a man's sperm, I mean, there's lots of sperm cells, uh, more than a billion in, in some cases, 
you know, goes into a, a, a woman and they and they kind of swim around and they and they find the right egg. That there's a, a form of selection that's happening there. But what what these kids a thousand years from now are going to be uh, born from is a a a selection that we are managing. We're going to be sequencing the egg and sperm. We're going to be sequencing probably many thousands of embryos. We're going to be selecting which one. And um, uh, and when you think about um, embryo selection, um, how did a, a wild chicken laying one egg a month become a domestic chicken laying one egg a day? Um, our ancestors did it not knowing anything about genetics. But if we have you know, all of these generations between now and a thousand years from now where we are making informed, they may not be wise, but informed <laughs> selections about who, about which embryos get implanted in, in the mother. We can really push a lot of evolutionary change. And then we're going to go in and we're going to make um, edits to our genomes. And I, I don't think even a thousand years from now, we're going to be making people from scratch, but we are going to be moving around a lot of, uh, of the genetics to, in order to either prevent bad outcomes or increase the likelihood of things that we consider to be good. All right. So I think it'll be interesting to go in and, and tease out some of the phrases that you've said and really talk about what that is. So we've got a chicken. It's laying one egg a month. And over time, we're going to turn that into a chicken that's laying um, one egg a day. Basically, what they're doing is uh, the they're looking for the one that lays two eggs a month and then right. they're trying to breed it with another one. And then when that one creates one that's like two and a half eggs a month, you breed that one with right. one that's doing a little bit more. And now all of a sudden over generations, you get that it becomes very common for them to do one a day. Same with dogs, right? It starts yeah. with a wolf that's just a little more friendly than the next and then flash forward. And I have a Pomeranian that, you know, wants to sit on my lap. So you selective breeding, I think is the term for that. Yeah. So you're yeah. just basically picking traits that you want. And then it has sort of a knock-on effect of other traits like the fluffier tail, the floppy ears. Um, they weren't necessarily breeding for that. They were breeding for temperament, but you get this sort of knock-on effect. That, yeah. Now, when and, we talk about... And that's exactly... And, and I think that, that people kind of get that, that you know, our dog, uh, they, they used to be like a wolf, and now they've, they've turned into, into dogs. What people have a hard time internalizing is that we used to be little single cell organisms. I mean, and, and I think that, that there's, there's, so much, there's so much movement, so much possibility in all of biology because almost four billion years ago, there was just one single cell organism and that grew into all of life. And so from this starting point of where we are now, there's an unlimited number of possible futures, even if we didn't have any of this biology, just because that's how biology works. Things morph. There's this constant. It's almost like a war of random mutation and, and natural selection, where where every new generation of every species is a little bit different from their parents, and sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse. And over time, huge changes happen. And now we are are amplifying and magnifying that process. Yeah, that that is 
the the whole notion of the blind watchmaker, right? That we've ended up the way that we've ended up through, um, I mean, if you believe in evolution, which I certainly do, that it, there wasn't like some desired outcome that was trying to be reached. It's your environment changes dramatically, sometimes completely without warning, what was working in a previous generation and the fittest of that generation now be maybe the least likely to survive and, you know, whatever um, adaptation has changed. And the fact that we went from oxygen being a poison to now being the very thing that we all need to survive and just the the way that things change like that what becomes so interesting though is when you inject human consciousness into it and it's now no longer a blind watchmaker it is someone with a high degree of intention that is deciding through embryo selection where we're going to go and that yeah. that was the thing that really is so interesting in yeah. hacking darwin is you keep telling these things like little stories like yeah. oh imagine that you go into this you know future near future, by the way, and they're just asking you, hey, so instead of, you know, implanting whatever it is now for IVF, like eight or nine or 15 yeah. embryos, it's a thousand. And we're able to screen them for um, high probability of certain outcomes, whether that's height, whether that's beauty, whether that's intelligence. And now it's like, do you want to know what yeah. this embryo has a chance of being? And if so, which of these do you want? And then you see how this really starts to become an issue. What are what are some of the like when we talk about playing God, what are some of the key things that you think people will start selecting from when we're just beginning to dip our toe that are sort of the the non-controversial ones? Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people ask about about playing God. And what I, what I always say is whatever your theology if you think that there's this all-powerful God who's making all kinds of decisions about how we live, and that God is deciding, yeah, I think this little kid should have some deadly genetic disorder, and, and this little kid should get run over. That's kind of a sadistic God. And so if you believe, as I do, that, that we are just one species among all these other species, and that we have just like a, a lion or a zebra or whatever is trying to think, well, how do I maximize my chance of survival and well-being that's why we have medicine and healthcare. that's why when a kid is born with a, a single gene mutation disorder some terrible deadly disease we don't say oh that's god i mean some people do but we don't say oh that's god's will we say to hell with that let's fix it and that's and now that we have more and more of the power to make those kinds of changes so the early the early uh, manifestations tend to be simpler um, because we know there's a whole category of, of these, what's called single gene mutation disorders or Mendelian disorders after, after Gregor Mendel. And that's where uh, you have one gene, one problem with a single mutation. It's one letter that's out of place. But if you have that, if you have that disruption or, or whatever it is, then you have one of these disorders like sickle cell disease or Tay-Sachs or, or whatever. And so it's a clearer case. We can just fix this one thing. And then a kid who was going to die when they were five all of a sudden has the opportunity to live to, to 90. Um, but, but life isn't, in the old days, people used to think, oh, there's a, a gene for that, a tall gene, a short gene. But life, we are, we are really complicated. We have our genetics. We have our broader systems biology. I'm sure you're Listeners have heard of the, of the epigenome and the metabolome and the proteome and all these ohms that are, that are part of, uh, of who we are. And so we're going to need more and more knowledge and more and more sophistication 
to make smart decisions in this world of complexity. Um, but we're going to get it. And the reason we're going to get it is because the complexity of our biology has remained relatively constant for millions of years. But the sophistication of our tools is increasing at an exponential rate. And just one example, in 2012, uh, Jennifer Doudna at Berkeley and, and others, um, they developed this system um, for uh, CRISPR genome editing. I think ma many people have heard of CRISPR now. Um, six years later, 2018, the world's first CRISPR babies were born. So that it took six years to go from just a, something in a, in a lab saying, hey, this may be an interesting way to edit the genome of a bacteria or the genome of a, of a single cell organism or some kind of simple organism. Six years later, the first human genome edited babies are born. So when you kind of take that for people that are flipping out right now, are yeah. we talking about the twins in China yes. where they did the edit for HIV resistance? Yeah. They, they, I mean, that that, like, that's pretty controversial, though, right? It's not like people are like, hey, no, 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 like, I think it's go terrible. for it. No, go I, for the prosper. As a matter of fact, I think it's terrible. I think that Ho Jong Kui, who's the, the doctor who did it, I mean, now we can talk about it later. Now it's like we've had 57 crises since then, so people are thinking about it less. Um, but I think it was highly irresponsible. I mean, there was this technology was being used in plants and, and animals. And so the first step with humans needed to be done very, very carefully. And what he and, and others working with him were trying to do is just to race forward um, to try to you know, claim some kind of, of glory. Uh, and it was, it was uh, very dangerous. Having said that, and, and I don't think it was, uh, you know, we don't know fully, but it looks like it wasn't even successful um, in conferring um, any kind of additional HIV resistance. Um, but had he not done it, um, uh, still, you know, some years after, five years, no, definitely not more than 10, somebody else would have done it. They, I'm sure they would have done it or hope they would have done it in a more responsible way with a, with a better target. What, yeah, I was gonna ask, what is a responsible way? When we start talking about going in, and and I think it, it bears saying for anybody that's new to this, so basically they're using bacteria which have an ability to ward off viruses by recognizing a piece of the viral code. Mm. So the, the what, ATC, oh God. Yeah. Like whatever the, yeah. the letters of yeah. life are. Yeah. They, they recognize a repeating pattern in that and they go, I've seen you before. And so yep. they've developed the ability to go and cut that yep. and it basically unravels the virus and the virus is done. So now once you have the ability to go in and cut a DNA sequence, you could go into a human DNA sequence, a plant DNA sequence, whatever, and you can, you, humans can actually program the bacteria and say, go look for this sequence, which yep. could be, uh, in this case, the susceptibility to HIV. Maybe they were wrong, but that was anyway what they right. were looking for. Go and cut that out, replace it with something else, which you can also tell it to do, which is insane. Uh -huh. And now you have the ability to actually genetically modify a human. Now you can, or any, you can get or into anything. like you, germline. You can you can modify anything. And and so what you've described is kind of the traditional CRISPR, but now there are new things, uh, base editing, other ways where you go and you, what's that? A, base editing. It's instead of cutting. You just change the letters because when you cut, it's kind How of aggressive. How the hell do you do that? It's, 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 these are all chemical reactions. So you have the same thing. You have the guide RNA telling you where to go. Um, but instead of doing a cut, 
you basically replace one genetic letter with with another. And the the key point is this stuff, it's getting better, it's getting faster, it's getting more accurate every day. And 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 that's why you, you talked in the beginning about, about science versus science fiction. Um, life is is at the boundary between those those two things because real science that's happening now feels like science fiction because we are so we were all by definition wedded to the reality around us and we have brains that are are have developed for practical thinking in the sense that if you're kind of a crazy thinker on the in the african savanna you probably are the, the guy who got eaten first because the the practical guy said like oh I, you know I, I think I heard a rustle in the in the in the in the, the weeds over there I'm running and the, the dreamer is kind of like looking up and imagining you know flying spaceships um, so we have these very practical brains by design and we have these technologies that are advancing exponentially and it's we really we have to kind of force ourselves to think like science fiction in order to really fathom the implications of the science fact. Yeah, that, that's one thing you make a good call for in the book, which is, hey, I'm writing this because we, we need to be talking about this, which, by the way, I d humans won't. Humans will not wake up to this until um, there is a problem, until people start getting genetically modified. And then there's going – like the first time you have a debate uh, as to whether or not a Chinese athlete should be allowed in the Olympics who's, you know, got – three times the muscle density of any other human being uh, because they manipulated, oh God, what are the double muscled cows? Oh, I'm forgetting the myostatin. name of it. But this yeah. is like myostatin. Yes, yeah. like there's a real gene that says yeah. stop basically producing muscle because muscle is actually dangerous when you think about a famine or something like that because right. muscles take up so many calories. So the body actually has to stop developing muscle. So when you have that myostatin inhibition where it doesn't kick in and tell you, you get these, like you can see pictures of cows that just like look like they live in the fucking gym. It is hilarious. Yeah. So when somebody starts making that, that edit and we see them roll up to the Olympics, now people are going to panic. That's like, yeah. in fact, the, um, back in the 70s when we had the first test tube baby, that was when people really started to go, oh, I guess this is really going to be an issue. I think it's, it's super hard to wake people up. It is. But well, not why, only that, the standard keeps changing, uh, just in the sense that you know, most of us, any, most any athlete today could beat most any athlete from 100 years ago. Uh, we're all, uh, almost all of us uh, are immunized, which is this incredible superpower that our ancestors uh, didn't have. And you talk about Louise Brown, the first, uh, the, the, uh, the first quote-unquote test, uh, test tube baby, IVF. It's always shocking in the beginning. And then it's like, oh, that's the way we do things. And you know, right now, I mean, we, we have this whole sport called weightlifting or bodybuilding, not one of those people could look like that if they were just living the life of our of our ancestors and eating plants and and the occasional zebra or or, uh, or or whatever. So I think that there are these these shock moments of like, well, that's not normal. And then the idea of what's normal shifts, and that and so I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, we are going to have genetically modified athletes. And, and we're going to want genetically modified athletes. As a matter of fact, if we did a full genetic analysis of everybody who's won the Olympics in any kind of extreme focused sport, like 
sprinting or marathon running or, or whatever, my guess is everybody um, is some kind of genetic outlier. We just haven't been able to look under the hood. And so I think it's going to be a question for us, what is natural when the whole concept of natural is, is constantly moving and changing? That's interesting. And then what humans um, say they want versus what they end up sort of voting for with their wallets. Yeah. So there was a really interesting movement in bodybuilding, probably got in the 70s, where you had this whole like steroids were really coming on the scene. Bodybuilders were getting much bigger, way smaller than they are today because steroids mm -hmm. are crazy effective and like we're selecting and pushing it farther than ever. But in the 70s, there was this real moment of like, hey, should we make this natural or should we go the drug route? And so there was a whole natural bodybuilding um, uh, organization and it just ended up getting its ass handed to it by the people that were on drugs. Now, obviously, yeah. they don't champion the fact that they're on drugs and and back then certainly most of them would claim no no no. what do you mean i'm not doing drugs right but it's just seeing them get that big seeing them be that sort of peak shifted from what you see walking down the street is so interesting and and it draws people in that that ends up being the one that gets the eyeballs and the most attention so when you first said like we'll want enhanced athletes i was like what why would we yeah. want them but putting it in that context of like Hey, if you've got somebody who can dunk a basketball on a 20-foot hoop, is that more interesting? We're, I mean, I think it's a great example. As a matter of fact, I started to write about, uh, about that in Hacking Darwin, and I got these pictures of these guys who were like the, the world uh, natural weightlifting or bodybuilding champion, and they, they were kind of all these puny guys, and you couldn't find one example of somebody who was in the, the kind of natural bodybuilding who looked anything like anybody who was in the the world bodybuilding champion. And and you're right. If mm. if we said, oh, we're gonna we're going to handicap everything and, and we only want these kind of quote unquote naturals, nobody wants that. No people what are what are people watching football here in, in the United States? I mean they want bigger people, they want faster people. The, I mean this is a it's a that's what's kind of interesting to us is well, what are the limits of what it means to be a human being? And certainly there are rules in sports and whatever those rules are, I mean, they're kind of random, but that's what makes a, makes a, a sport. You can say, well, it's cheating if you do something that's not in, in the rules, but there'll be other people who will say, well, let's make a, you know, let's make an Olympics for, people who are enhanced and how many people are going to watch that enhanced Olympics. I mean, some of them, some of them will. And again, I'm not saying this is good or bad because the answer is it's probably both. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who say, well, I know what it means to be natural. I know what it means to be a human and that's the line and we can't cross that line. But how we define that is very, very different from, from how our, ancestors define them. I, I live in an apartment in New York. My ancestors were a bunch of nomads in the African safari. If I said, oh yeah, it's going to be, it's like a thing, it's a building, you have to you take the elevator or, or go up the stairs and there's air conditioning and you know you don't have to hunt, you just kind of open the, the refrigerator and there's stuff there. Like that would seem insane and everything always seems insane and yet, and, insane, and yet we kind of keep moving and then that, that's why for me the, the question 
the ultimate question is ethics. The ultimate question is, well, what are we comfortable with and collectively, and how do we make sure that for something that's this sensitive, we're moving forward in a thoughtful way together rather than having a bunch of, that's why I'm a critic of, of Hu Jiankui in China, in China, rather than having just a bunch of people making individual decisions because the implications of those individual uh, decisions are societal. I don't think we ever got to the answer of what would be the right way to go about beginning to practice this on humans. What does that look like? Is yeah, it yeah. just, in fact, do you have a line? Is it disease removal purely? Is there something else? Like, how, how do we do it well? Yeah, so there's no natural line uh, because a lot of, when I talk to people, what people feel like they want is, well, I'm for therapeutic applications to treat diseases and I'm against enhancement. I think most people kind of, feel that they that they want that. But when you push them of like, well, where does therapy end and enhancement begin? Like if your child is going to be born and they're going to be one foot tall, like, and you have an intervention that can make them six feet tall, would you make that intervention? I think most people would say, well, geez, one foot tall, like that's gonna be really hard to, uh, hard to, to live. Although somebody could like put you in their purse and carry them around, carry you around. Um, and, but then if you, they say, well, I definitely want that. And then you say, all right, how about two feet? And they say, yeah, well, two feet is still too short. And at, at some point, you kind of get to five feet. And they say, well, you know, five feet, that's within the realm of normal. Lots of people who are five feet tall have. And you, you, there's no natural line between those things. But for your, your question, I'm part of the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing. And that's what we're trying to do is at least to lay out um, what could be just some basic guidelines and, and parameters. And I think the, the core, the two core principles, one needs to be cost benefit analysis I mean, to, to change the foundations of what it means to be a human. It's actually a really big deal. It's actually really serious. We don't know enough about the fully how the human body works to feel that, that any change is, is costless. I mean, anything that we do, um, there is an upside perhaps, and, and there's a potential downside. And sometimes we don't know what those things are. So we just, we need to be thoughtful about cost benefit analysis. And we need to be make sure that we're keeping society together. Uh, because when, when we start, when people start talking about changing their genetics it's not just them especially you you started to mention heritable or or, or germline manipulations if i have a a, a germline um manipulation and i have a child with somebody then my children will also gain that that change and that and they my those kids will go out and live their life and they may have kids with with somebody else so everybody else is a stakeholder in my decisions when we're talking about these kinds of, of systemic change. I think they should be. And I think that that's why we need to have these broader and inclusive conversations about the way to Let, let me ask, why, why do you think that it matters so much? Is it purely um, the psychological component? Because let's say that you were, if you introduced a, um, essentially you're introducing a mutation, it's very intentional, but you're introducing a mutation that mutation is either going to work or it's not going to work. If it doesn't work, it's going to die out. And if it does work, then 
would not society, depending on what it is, obviously, would not society benefit from that? And look, I, I am well, I am asking a, a sort of devil's advocate sure. rhetorical yeah, question. Yeah. I am well aware of the implications yeah. of eugenics and all that terrifying shit. But I, what I'm trying to understand is, are we, because I'm, I'm basically going to, whatever our big fear is, I'm going to say, okay, if we remove that, then right. like, wh where does the discussion open up? So is it the the sort of, moral implications of we shouldn't play God? Is it the societal implications like you're talking about where it's like, look, we've got seven plus billion people. Like it's shitty to make them obsolete versions basically. And you're introducing something so much better. Like that's sort of brutal in its own right. Is it the suffering of that one person that if you get it wrong, like fuck, like you could be messing them up in ways you don't even know till they're like 35 and then their face starts to melt. You know, it's like, you, you just don't know. Like yeah. where... Where are the big, like when you guys sit down yeah. in your think tank room, what are you putting your finger on of like, this is where we can't go here for this reason? Yeah. So personally for me, uh, definitely playing God has nothing to do with it. Because I, I, I write about this in the book. If, if you believe in that kind of God, then why isn't God playing God? Like, why isn't God preventing all these, all these kinds of, of bad outcomes? For me, it, it, and it's not inherently... Um, morally wrong. As a matter of fact, I could easily paint a scenario where it would be morally wrong not to intervene. I mean, if you had uh, some, let's say you had one embryo, and if that embryo was implanted, it's the only one you have, your only chance to have a child, and if that embryo was implanted, uh, that embryo would, uh, that when it became a child, would die very young of some terrible single gene mutation disorder, and it's not treatable. And I, I could easily make an argument that it would be immoral not to intervene, not to genetically engineer that pre-implanted embryo to make that one change so that that kid could, could live a, a, a long life. And so I, I definitely think on a moral front, we have to be having these conversations. I, mean, I certainly was very honored. The Vatican uh, published a, a piece of mine that's, that's on my, in my website. Um, on exactly these issues, and I raised some really challenging issues in, uh, for, for them in, in how we should think about these, these moral issues. For me, the issue is societal, um, because we're not going to, first, we're not going to know whether any changes that we make are good or bad. Certainly, if you're saving a kid from, uh, from death, that's, that's good. But for these other kinds of changes, it's, it may take a long time, and, and our biology is extremely complex. And so I just feel like if somebody is changing a system, and we're all part of that system, I mean, it's not because if 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 it wasn't heritable, it was just somebody doing something to themselves. You can say, all right, well, you know, you you tried the kind of you know three eyes thing or whatever, and and maybe it worked for you, maybe it, it didn't work for you. But when they're changing. We're all part of this connected thing of, of, of humanity, and I'm not saying don't change it. I'm just saying that changing it should at least partly be a collective decision. It's primarily an individual decision, um, but because individual changes, when it, they're heritable, will affect everybody else, we need to have some kind of, of process. And I think that and there's a, you know, this is life, and, and, and it's normal in our societies that issues that touch life are regulated, and we you know, we have debates on things like abortion versus um, uh, versus choice. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we recognize that life 
is really sensitive and we need to have some kind of guardrails beyond just human self-experimentation. And we need to make sure that the science is, is good. Okay, so now let's say, I get it. You have been so clear and consistent on your messaging. This Everyone should have a seat at the table. Everybody should be voting on this. Now I'm just saying, let's say that we had a, a representative democracy here right. and we all elect you. And we want this, you this because a, you was, know- Can I say um, thank you? This was a wise choice. I promise I will lead wisely <laughs> in your interest. This is all about you. It's not about me. Amazing. I love that. So <laughs> what what rules do you put in place? And let's make them twofold. One, self. So are there limitations to what I can do myself? And then on the germline where this is now going to affect everybody. Yeah. What sort of, you know, we don't have to get down to like subpoint, you know, 14 on a big contractual thing, but just sort of broad strokes. Yeah. What limitations, if any, would you put on the self? And what limitations, if any, would you put on germline? Yeah. So I definitely would have more latitude for people doing things to themselves, um, but not complete latitude. I mean, right now it's, it's illegal to commit suicide. I mean, it's hard to, hard to, enforce. but do you think that's smart? You know, I, I think it's, it's hard to enforce. I think we should stigmatize, um, suicide. But should we make it illegal? Well, I'm going to pause and, and, and reflect. I don't think it should necessarily be illegal. Um, cause certainly I support euthanasia. Um, but I also feel that we should make sure that it's discouraged other than in, in some pretty terrible and, and extreme cases, uh, because there are cultures um, that, that actually um, are much more accepting of suicide, some Asian cultures, uh, for example, and traditionally Japan. And I don't think, it's, I don't think that's healthy. So I, I, I think it's good to have bad things stigmatized whether Ill, making them illegal is the right way to do it, I don't know. And, I, and again, as I as I said, I support um, I support euthanasia uh, in extreme cases, but again, in a regulated environment where it's, it's because otherwise things can really get uh, get out of hand. But coming back to your question about so for, in terms of individual latitude, I think the individuals should have some latitude, but I also think that society um, has a responsibility to protect individuals' health. Like if I go to the drugstore- From I, themselves. From, yeah, well, like for example, that's why if I go to the drugstore and, and buy some kind of product or, or a drug, I want the government to regulate whether it's safe for me to take that thing into my body. If I go to a doctor and the doctor is doing some kind of procedure on me, I want the government to say, well, this is a safe procedure or this procedure is within the bounds of normalcy. Because otherwise you go there and, and somebody would say, well, I, you know, I cut off your arm, I, whatever the, the, the thing is, we need that. And uh, you know, I don't imagine that every individual has perfect knowledge. And so if, if everybody had perfect knowledge of all the risks and all the, ben and, um, uh, and all the benefits of any kind of intervention, you'd say, well, geez, you, you go to the drugstore or you go to the doctor, here's this range of stuff, you're getting your, your arms and legs cut off because you have a headache. It seems like a bad idea, but 
if you want to do it, go for it. I mean, we don't want to live in that kind of, of society. So I think there's all right. Let me let me pin you down. Yes. So you've got uh, in food anyway, it's called grass, generally recognized as safe. Yeah. So if if an ingredient is generally recognized as safe, then you can put it in your food without having to seek any right. further yep. approval or anything. But if you're putting something that's outside that list, then you may have to seek approval. Um, would you be in favor if there was a a grass list of edits where it was like we've tried these out we went through whatever approval process we had to go through we've gone through that is there anything that you would intrinsically say this is only for self yeah i would not want them doing you can't add a third arm no third leg um no increasing your intelligence like is there anything that as long as it was safe is there anything you would not want the self to do? So I'll flip it a little bit. So let's start with the things that I would be comfortable with. So like the whole range of, of deadly single gene mutation disorders, once it's proven that these interventions could be happening and they're safe, which and we're not there yet, again, which is, is why I'm so critical of, of Hu Jiankui, the Chinese scientist. But I think we will be. I think we will be relatively soon. I think it's that we're going to think about like a range of interventions, whether it's at the pre-implanted embryo stage, whether it's the embryo stage, newborn stage, whatever. And there'll be you know, a certain time where it'll make most sense to, to intervene in, mo in most cases to prevent something bad. And that will, uh, I'm certain of it, that will become a norm. And there will be a growing list of acceptable interventions that over time we know either are, sa are safe or that the, the risk is outweighed by what we know about the potential benefits. But as I, as I write about in the book, that list is going to grow and it's going to grow over time and it's going to move beyond what we think about as therapeutic interventions into new areas that, that now we think of as enhancements. And I'm not necessarily inherently against anything, um, but I just think that it will make most sense for some kind of intervention to get on the, this is safe, we know what we're doing list before people start doing experimentation or self-experimentation. And again, as I said, and the government has an interest in protecting us from those things. I mean, I listened to a lot of these different podcasts and, and I was on Joe Rogan and, and, and I, I, it's, I love that podcast, but there's some stuff that people say, it's like, oh yeah, of course X is true. And, and I'm listening, it's like, well, wait a second, X isn't true. And, and when we're talking about systemic life-changing interventions, we just, we just need to be careful. Biology is really, complicated stuff we don't we don't really understand human biology i mean if we think of of all of human biology as like if you understood it completely that would be a hundred percent and if you knew nothing it would be zero percent maybe we're at four percent maybe five percent we don't know fifty percent of how our, our 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 bodies work so i think we, we need to be conservative but i don't i don't i don't i don't see any inherent barrier over time I mean, if somebody is trying to do genetically engineer their kids now for an enhanced intelligence, it's just not going to, going to work. But only because we don't know how to do it, right? Correct. The intelligence yeah. is just so complicated. It's the interplay of so many different genes that we haven't identified yet. Part of what I'm I'm trying to walk through, and I find this so fucking interesting, yeah. is 
I, I want to get to, um, I want to remove some of what I'll call the more mundane, like you and I aren't actually making policy right now. Uh, you may be in, in the, you know, outside of this podcast, but at least in the confines right. of, you know, our time together, we're not actually making right. policy. So I'm trying to figure out like where, where the pain points are for you. So here's, here's how I see it. So one, I, I watched somebody um, in the last couple of days of their life and they were fucking suffering at, at a level. I was just like, this is so crazy. And he, he really was hell bent to live up to this idea of like, I'll never give up. And I thought, wow, that's so impressive. And it was like, I was moved by it. And I, I have built my reputation on like, you know, never say die, like keep going. And as I was watching him, I was like, this doesn't make sense. He should absolutely, my advice to you, dear friend, that's going through this is 100% euthanasia. Like there's, this is a one way street. There's no coming back from this. It is clear that you're within hours or days of passing away. You are so uncomfortable. Now it should be his decision a hundred percent, but I know at one point he had looked at it and he was going to have to move States and all that. And so it was just like this real complicated mess. And I just thought euthanasia 100% should be legal. Now, like you, I, I consider it such a dangerous tool to employ quickly that it scares the shit out of me. But do I think that it should be illegal? No, I do not, because I just think it's so complicated. Now, the, now when I extend that to my thinkings about one's ability to begin to modify yourself, I think you're a fucking idiot if you start playing with your genes, unless that shit has been tried by a lot of people before you. But... My fascination or my hope is that enough people do want to be early adopters that the government has gone through with a hunt, definitely not letting this be the Wild West, but going in just like they do with food. And I think they make a lot of bad decisions in food, but it's better than no decisions being made that they come up with a generally recognized as safe um, editing list and that people then get to decide what they want to try. And that over time, we'll get to see like, hey, what works? I will not be an early adopter, but I will certainly be paying attention for things like if I could beef up my intelligence, I would do it 100%. If I could beef up my ability even to read faster, I would do it 100%. Now, of course, I'm going to just like staying in good health, I would rather do it through diet and exercise than I would through taking a supplement. I like knowing that supplements are there so that if I'm unable to get to you know whatever point I want, that I can lean on that or even plastic surgery. I've not done it but I reserve the right to. Yeah. So I'm glad that it's not illegal. So I definitely fall on the love regulation thing that's so important to keep people because they're not going to be educated to make sure that they're not getting themselves in trouble. But I like the idea of like pushing the boundary of what we can recognize as being safe further and further out. On the, the flip side of that, now you've got germline editing. That one taps into something for me which is far more terrifying, which is... I think that we want to do it. I think I think we should want to do it is a better way of saying it. But you want to talk about something that I think the discrepancy between what I want to be true and what will be true is so terrifyingly vast that if we could lock that, oh God, you, you really can't lock it forever. Yeah. I'm going to read, I'm going to... And you, go wouldn't, ahead. you wouldn't want to lock it forever just because... I mean, the, the whole point of evolution is evolution is buggy. When we mean random mutation, that means that every offspring of every species is different from their parents. And sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse. And if we were just living totally in nature, then the, the better stuff and better doesn't mean inherently better. It's just better suited for the particular environment in which it, it, it exists. 
that then that wins over time and that's how uh, and that's how species evolve but for us who kind of are wedded to being this thing that means that every generation you have some good stuff and you have some bad stuff and sometimes the bad stuff is so bad that it can kill you and sometimes we call it cancers and 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 other things so i don't think that we should rule out any kind of uh, of intervention just because of the nature of that intervention it's just that we need to be really careful and thoughtful about the cost benefit analysis and the context in which we do something and so i i, I just think i think it would be a terrible mistake to say never germline i mean i had this debate with the catholic church um and and but that doesn't mean that the alternative to that is always germline or do whatever you want. I, I want to drop this into the messy reality by quoting um, you. Well, <laughs> probably your publisher. Uh, but this was something written in the description of Genesis Code, one of your science fiction books. Yeah. It says, in 2023, America, bankrupt, violently divided by the culture wars and beholden to arch rival China, the rules of the game are complicated. And I thought, first of all, when did you write that? Yeah. What year? I have to say, I'm so proud of that. I wrote it, oh God, um, in two, I have to remember, like 2000 and, uh, I don't know, seven or 2008. The fact that you put your finger on the culture war yeah. is crazy. No, I, have uh, to, I want to be audited. I want somebody to go through everything I've written, everything that I've said, and and tell me, which I kind of know, like how accurate it was, because in this, I mean, in, in Genesis Code, I mean, that's what's happening. Our culture is divided. There are all these culture wars. We're ripping each other, ripping each other apart. And then there are all of these, these new technologies, which are kind of, which are amplifying these divisions and creating new opportunities for people to do things differently. So when I think about like the tragedy of the commons and the fact that, you know, hey, I'm looking at this whale in the water and I think it, it adds more value to my life to be in the water and to be free and, you know, how beautiful mm -hmm. that is. But then somebody else is like, fuck that. Like, I'm going to harpoon this thing and take it in and sell it for the oil. And you realize, well, man, then I'm here like do it, it is going to get whaled. So do I be the one to whale it? It's like we we have seen that play out so many times and it's so devastating, obviously not taking us anywhere spectacularly wonderful and yet it is the reality that we face and the fact that china has already done um gene editing on living humans you can see like we may not want it to be true but the fact is that people are playing with this and if we get and look it's not today so everybody who's who's dismissing this by saying why, why the fuck are they even talking about this like mm -hmm. this is potentially decades out it's going to happen if you give us any like there's a great um elon musk quote where he's saying about virtual reality, if you give any rate of improvement, you don't have to buy into Moore's mm -hmm. law. It could take 10,000 years, but th this is going to end up being a debate that has to happen. Same is true in, because the big question mark in gene editing is, we don't know what genes actually do what when you take them in concert. Mm -hmm. But as you say in the book, Hacking Darwin, we are not infinitely complex. We're just incredibly complex. And as long as there is a finite nature to the level of complexity, ultimately our ability to process that data with computers or whatever is going to reach the point where we right. will be able to say, this embryo equals this. This is your Einstein embryo. This is your Rain Man embryo. And like, you get a pick. And so, cool, I'm going to take my Einstein embryo. Okay, now, if we're playing that game, and I know 
that either very rapidly through gene editing or more slowly by just embryo selection, a nation state can take itself, like you can imagine when this is like the chicken that lays one egg a month becomes the chicken that lays an egg every day. What happens when it's Einstein and then you take Einstein's Einstein baby and then you take Einstein's Einstein's Einstein baby and like all of a sudden it's, you know, you've got IQs of 300 or 500 or 1,000 and compared to somebody who refuses to play those games, I don't want to go up against somebody with an IQ of 1,000 with my, you know, buck 15 or whatever that I'm hovering at. So it's like, that that gets yeah. gnarly. But what do you do when it's the culture wars tearing us apart? It's us v. China or Russia or whoever. Yeah, yeah. And like they're going to fucking harpoon the whale if we don't. And now it's like as much yeah. as I was about to say lock that shit down. I'm like, oh, man, you can't because I don't want to become, you know, I don't want to get taken over essentially by a nation that does choose to do that. And so that you you put your finger on exactly the point, and, and that I'm spending about ninety percent of my life's energy right now trying to solve exactly that that uh, that problem, um, because if we don't solve this this global tragedy of the commons uh, problem, where um, we're just going to compete ourselves in, in into um, uh, out of existence, and that's for me. I mean, this I. Uh, so now I'm, I'm in earlier, I'll give you the quick backstory. Um, earlier uh, in the year, uh, in the very, very beginning stages of the pandemic, I was supposed to give a talk for Singularity University, which is like the university of the future. And I'm on faculty there on whether the tools of the genetics revolution were a match for the pandemic. And that morning I woke up and said, it's a really important question, but it's not the question. The question is, is what you just asked is why is it that we weren't prepared for this pandemic and why is it that we can't we weren't able to prepare for any pandemic um and why is it that we can't solve any of these big global problems whether it's protecting the ocean ecosystems like you mentioned or climate change or proliferation of weapons of mass destruction or the the big scientific issues um, because we're all competing with each other and the reason is it's this the same global collective action problem is that we are, um, our big problems are shared and global, but the way we're organized to address them, at least since 1648 and the Peace of Westphalia, which ended the Thirty Years' War, is predominantly national. And so these, these kind of national forces that you've just described, um, they drove us into two world wars, and then we thought, oh shit, if we don't fix this problem, we're gonna keep going war after war after war. And that was why we created this thin overlay of international organizations like the, like the UN. But still, we live in this world of competing states. And the problem is that our little species of these, these African nomadic primates suddenly and very rapidly became a species with the ability, as, as we're talking about now, to fundamentally change all of life on Earth. So we're just this is one little species. We now have this, this power, and we don't have an infrastructure that allows us to come together to solve these kinds of, of problems. And so that's, anyway, that, that talk went viral. Then I stayed up all night. I drafted a declaration of global interdependence. That went viral. I called a meeting of People on my email list, I had uh, 130 people from 25 countries, and together we launched this, what's become um, one uh, organization, One Shared World, 
Um, and OneShared.World, now we're a community of people in 110 countries. But the goal is to solve this global collective, collective action problem. Because if we just, if it's everyone for themselves and every country for themselves, our species is now so powerful, we're going to wipe ourselves out. So what, what is the sort of key tenet? How do we pull that off? So what we have to do is first we need to recognize and articulate our interdependence. I mean, that's, that's the problem. I mentioned I'm an advisor to, to WHO. Um, this pandemic could have been stopped in its tracks if we had just built the World Health Organization that we need, a WHO that had its own global surveillance system uh, that could send investigators anywhere in the world on a moment's notice, unlike in the actual situation where China blocked them for, uh, for almost a, a month, where the WHO could coordinate a smart, collective uh, response to the pandemic. If we had all those things, we wouldn't be in this in this in this predicament that we're in we're in now. So what does it look like? It looks like every organization in the world, every business, every civil society group, every government, every political party has to recognize that we have our core constituencies, the people who we represent, whether it's the citizens of our country, and we have our collective constituency of our of our species and our and our planet, and that we have to ultimately, going back to your thing of killing the whale or or not, it's the same point as whether we you do germline edits or not. We have to do a cost benefit analysis. But if everybody is thinking just cost benefit to me, then we're just gonna we're gonna kill ourselves. And so we we have to we have to not just change consciousness. But then use that change conscious, changed consciousness to change the institutions around us. But do you have any sense of how we actually pull that off? Like a lot of when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, yes, mm -hmm. but humans aren't currently wired that way. And yeah. until because so I think about this a lot in the context of AI and people are always worried that, you know, the paperclip problem, that if right. you give yeah. AI the incentive to make paperclips, it'll look at you and be like, those atoms would be way better used as paperclips. So it, it doesn't kill you to kill you. It right. kills you to turn you into the superior paperclip. Right. And so but the, the that desire was programmed. Right. And minus that desire, um, you it's essentially inert. So. I started thinking about desires as sort of being programmed, and I think about humans as sort of wet AI, and through evolution, we've got these imperatives. Now, I don't, maybe somebody's taken the time to, to write them down. It'd be super interesting to see somebody's take on what our imperatives are. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're driven, certainly at a really simplistic level, towards pleasure, away from pain, and nature has made things like sex very pleasurable so that you have kids that have kids. Um, and things like getting injured, very painful, so that you stay along, stay alive long enough so that you can have kids that have kids. So that is, at a really basic level, it, it shows if you want to change the outcome, you have, to, you have to change the incentive structure. And so if evolution has given us a set of um, imperatives, like how do you get a radical change like that without a dramatic change in imperative? Yeah. And then maybe that begs nature versus nurture, but I don't think like, I, how do we solve that? I don't that? think you have to go that far because there, there's no national imperative in evolution. I mean, there's, you're, you're in California. I'm in, I'm in New York. Isn't there? No, no, the, I mean, like there, we're so tribal. We are tribal, but, but the, those tribes used to be you know, some small group of families that were together. And then it was like, oh, those assholes you know, over there, that that other tribe. But then we, we've grown. And so then it became 
you know, people in your region that were, that was the us, and the other thing was the them. And then now it's the, the people, I mean, um, Yuval Noah Harari talks about this in your country. I mean, I haven't met most people in, in the United States. I, I feel like, well, we're, I mean, when we feel that way, we're kind of on the same team. And sometimes we'll have like the World War II where everyone will really feel it. And then we'll have a time like now where people don't feel it um, uh, quite as much. But there's nothing natural, there's nothing inherent about a national identity. Um, Let, let's dive into that because I'm going to yeah. have a hard time moving past yeah. that one. Yeah. So um, I agree that it isn't inherently national in nature at all, but the national is leveraging something that already exists, which is us and other. So if we know that you could change that, you look at like, for example, these young kids in the, the, the global climate change movement. I mean, they, they've kind of decided, well, I'm, I'm less an American and I'm more someone who wants to change the climate. I think that there's there, there, but they're just changing the us and the other. So what I'm saying is you have an us and other problem. And so there's a reason that so many great science fiction. Have you um, read the comic book, the graphic novel, The Watchmen? Yeah, it's so funny. I was just it's different say, than the movie. You know, so I, I, have to say, I haven't read the comic book. I saw the series, which I loved, even though it totally collapsed in, uh, in, in the end. But I, even before that, I thought it was great. And then I went back and watched the, uh, the movie, which I thought sucked. Um, but the, the idea that you kind of create the giant squid to kind of, because I do think that we have this us and them, but the categories of who is us and who is them are really malleable. And so if the us is us, our little tribe, or us, our country, or whatever, the them can be the other tribe or the other country. But it could just as well be with our exact biology uh, that the us is humanity and the other are these forces that are that are trying to that have the potential to destroy us and destroy our our home That's so abstract i don't think humans are going to get down with that like when i really really stop to mm -hmm. think about okay how do you so impact theory its whole thing is like how much can i actually influence the cultural subconscious so i think a yeah. lot about like how you get people to group up and it it does seem true to me that you need a very compelling tangible other to bond people together, just like at a neurochemical level, yeah. right? You're right. that you would be expressing vasopressin, oxytocin, that you're bonding with these people in a very non-abstract way, like a super concrete way. Like, but how about if you just replace this giant squid um, with a virus that is attacking us and killing all of these all of these people? We just ran that experiment. Did it work? But it didn't work, and we're dying because it didn't work, and that's. I think that that's the big. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I wish it had worked. Like, that would have been rad. If well, well, for, still, and and honestly, for a brief second, it looked like it was going to work. But it's, it's still playing out, and we don't know um, whether it will or won't work. I mean, the way I, I always say this is year. It's kind of like a 1918 year where there's like some good possible futures we can imagine, and there's some bad possible futures that we can imagine, and the good ones are are better. But it's but. Yeah, you're right. I mean, 1945, we were able to do all these kind of new things because there was this devastating war. 75 million people died and then the good guys won and were able to say, hey, we're going to do things a little bit differently. And so it may be that this crisis isn't big enough, but if there was ever 
an, a learning opportunity to say, well, how do we how do we handle this? And and I think this is the way we have to come together because let's say that we we get a control of this virus. Who's to say there's not two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, a synthetic biology, um, a genetically engineered virus that's a hundred times hundred times worse. And so. I'm not saying that that we definitely will succeed, but I think that it's it's not pushing against our evolution in any kind of of way that's different from the idea that a bunch of different people can all have that same identity as being part of one country. I mean, I mean it may be that we are an us versus them species, but there's a lot of different ways that those that those forces and impulses can be configured. Okay, so as my elected representative to make all these decisions, I I have a pitch that I want to make. Yeah. Um, and tell me if you think this is crazy. So when I think about, okay, the way forward, it's messy. You've got countries for right now. Maybe we can one day transcend that. That would be amazing. Um, I love the idea of when you draw a circle to exclude me, I'll draw a bigger circle to include you. I think that's spiritually so rad. Um, but right now we're in like a super messy place where it's nations fighting against each other, resources being limited. Nah. So you get all the madness that we're all experiencing right now. Within that confine, one thing maybe, maybe that we could get people to get on board with would be we're going to totally say um, gene editing Except for um, Mendelian, what is it? Mendelian, you got the it. single yeah, yeah, Mendelian, yeah. the the single like mutation genes, those that are like just horrendous diseases um, that are very easy to edit. Yes to that, and unfortunately for now we have to say no to everything else. So even though you could spare some human suffering, we there's just too many unknowns, so we're not going to play with that. So yes to Mendelian, no to everything else. But what we are going to get behind is a 10% improvement across, let's say, um, 10 variables, longevity, intelligence, whatever. You, you're going to end up telling us what the 10 are. But across 10 things that we agree globally, um, and those are examples of what I mean, we're going to um, push for a 10% improvement, just mathematically. And we're going to do it through embryo selection. So that would require us obviously to beef up our ability to assess what genes equal what outcomes. But then because technology, the best definition of technology I've ever seen is technology is a hope for a better future. So you have to give people this belief that life is going to get better for their kids and better for their kids and better for their kids. Because that ultimately, I think, is what people are really fighting for to be like, yo, I made all these sacrifices so that my kids would have it better than I had. it." I love that impulse. I think it's beautiful, even though I don't have children. So. That, that to me makes sense. And if we capped it to something manageable so that no one generation felt like, you know, I'm being totally left behind, that it's 10% improvement, but over 10 generations, like you've got a doubling. Yeah. What so, do you think about that um, representative? I love you, Tom. Bad idea. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so here's one. So first, it's not, we, we shouldn't feel that, the single gene mutation, the Mendelian interventions are good and others are, are, are bad because some of those interventions may end up being good. Some may end up being bad. It really depends. And also for these, these more complex interventions, we don't know what's going to work. What we want, what we need um, is not rules because any rule that we set is not going to make sense when when the messiness uh, when it faces the messiness of the world. 
But what we can have are values and values of what we believe in uh, and, and a level of certainty, of confidence that something is going to work to drive a, a, a desired outcome. Uh, because it's not just I mean, that um, our, our bodies are really complex. And so we, let's say we said we're going to make ourselves you know, 10% smarter. We have no idea what comes with that 10%. It, it could be madness. It could be all, all sorts of things. And so I think that for me, rather than. But if we were making 10 percent improvement, we would have the chance to pump the brakes if we see a problem coming. So I think we should always be exploring everything using this kind of cost benefit analysis, integrating our best our best values uh, and having a broad, open public conversation and, and process so we can make those decisions, because. It may be that 10% is too low. Maybe we need to be 500 times smarter than, than we are in order to survive because we know our planet is, is going away. I mean, I think there's, that I, for me, I, and that this is, again, my, my piece for the Vatican was about this, in which I was, why I was so surprised they actually published it, because I said exactly the point I'm making to you is if we try to live by hard and fast rules, those rules are going to be immediately obsolete. What we have to do is say, what are the principles that we want to guide us and what are the structures that we'd like to build to help make these balances in an inclusive democratic way and then explore carefully and cautiously what's working and what's not working. And there may be some areas where we think like, that's incredible. <clears throat> My feeling is if we can get health, extend healthy lifespan, I'd say no limits. I mean, let's. I'd, I'd love to have you know, my parents living, you know, to their hundreds and 120s and 200s and, and, and whatever. And I, so I don't think we need to impose imaginary restrictions on ourselves for futures that we're, we are, we don't know yet. We just need to keep moving forward and, and, and keep moving forward carefully. Okay, so now to push this a little bit farther. One thing I've learned in business, this is an immutable truth. You are only as good as what you write down. Mm -hmm. So you, at some point, the values, the system has to be translated into a document. Yeah. Um, when I think about the U.S., we the Constitution's been pretty amazing, right? You put this document down, your ideals, maybe right. you could even call that your value system. Uh, you put in sort of a formal structure to things, so there's checks and balances. I think it's it's really quite brilliant. Um, do you have sort of rough swag notions that would be put down? Like all, like if, if we were going to go back and write the constitution again, I think we would change men to people, right? So all people are created equal. Like that's a pretty rad start. Um, do you have something like that in terms of how we need to think about it? Like specifically, what is the value set? Yeah. So, um, two questions in terms of writing it down there, there have been efforts to do it. UNESCO did it. The council of Europe did it. It's never... It's never perfect. It's so far ha actually hasn't even been been that great. Um, but but I do think that, that the value set for for me are one, we need to have an open environment for science Two, we need to have meaning that it, all information needs to be put out there. Well, I think just the, that we, we shouldn't be trying to cut down the basic science to prevent some kind of theoretical outcome in the future. I really, I believe in science. I believe in, in scientific experimentation. And I know that people who are going to be asking these questions about what are the rules, 
some subset of them are going to be people who say, well, let's just shut down the science so we never have to ask these questions. So my, my point number one is I really believe in the science. I believe in the process of scientific exploration, and I think that needs to be really important. Number two um, is that in terms of the process, this has to be an open, inclusive, transparent process that, that we can't have even very smart people, even specialists, making decisions about the future of life that apply to everybody. This is up to, to everybody. And number So should it be voted on? Well, so the, that's a big question. It's connected to the work that I'm doing with, um, with One Shared World and um, so and with the World Health Organization. So governance systems aren't, it's not just one thing. I mean, right now when we think of well, how, is, how is, is genetic engineering, for example, regulated, it's not just laws. It's internal review boards in hospitals. It's how uh, scientific publications operate. And there's a lot of different pieces of this. So um, yes, there are, there, there are laws and they, they need to be written down. But in my mind, we should think also in terms of processes because it's not, it's not going to be any one thing, any one mechanism that fully establishes a, a, a governance. And then third um, is that we need to have regulatory infrastructures that, in my mind, the best regulated, at least for genetic engineering and human fertilization, and um, is uh, the United Kingdom, uh, where they've, they have a really thoughtful process where they're actually weighing costs and benefits of different interventions. So I think that every country needs to have a system. Right now, some do, and, and, and some don't have, have anything that balances these kinds of international best practices. Is this with, like the FDA of genetic alterations? It, it is, but it's much, it, the, the UK system is just much more thoughtful. I mean, FDA is a great agency, but this, it's, it's much more thoughtful. And they're, and they've, like, for example, there's a, a procedure called mitochondrial transfer. Um, just a quick summary is the mitochondria are the power packs of your DNA, um, the power packs of your cells, I'm sorry, and if you're if you think of your cell as like an egg, the nucleus is the um, uh, is the egg yolk, and the cytoplasm is the egg white, and the mitochondria exist in the egg white. When some women um, have faulty mitochondria, they pass them uh, in varying degrees to their children, and that can cause all kinds of things, including early death. So there's a process called mitochondrial transfer, basically swapping egg yolks from a one with the diseased mitochondria to one with a healthy one. It's not. It's it's banned in the United States. In the UK, they had a three-year national debate. Then they had an open vote of both houses of parliament, and then they passed it to this Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority to regulate. And so, everyone who wants to do it, you have to apply um, first for your clinic or your lab, and then for each application, you have to apply again for each specific application. And they have all these experts and very thoughtful people who are making those decisions. I mean, it's a, it's a really smart way to do things. We don't have that, and, and, and certainly we need that. And then finally, um, and so and that will allow us to have do this kind of cost-benefit analysis, which I think is, is essential. And then the, the final piece of it is that I, I think it's OK for society to define red lines beyond which we don't think people should go, uh, even though those may change over time. So we had, after the Second World War, the Nuremberg trials, where to say, well, there were things like 
human experimentation, which we think are so wrong that we're going to, to create an international standard saying that they're uh, that they're wrong. And so, you know, again, we we have our, our access to read, write, and hack the code of life, and there are all kinds of really nefarious things that people could do, including human experimentation, including let's just say, I mean, this is a kind of a caricaturish example, but there was some country like North Korea that said, all right, we can do embryo selection, some minimal genetic engineering to have to divide people into certain classes. We want a certain class that's more docile, more subservient or whatever. And let's just say hypothetically, I don't think that we would say, oh, just live and let live. That's North Korea. That's just North Korea being North Korea. I think we'd say we want we want to have some standards about what is and isn't okay, and that we collectively, like we do with all sorts of issues in in international law, come together to start to try to articulate what those things are. All right, you just scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so you you've got your science fiction ability to predict so much that you want the audit to see what you've been right about. Walk us through what. I, I never contemplated a future where a society would want to do that. But as soon as you say it, it seems almost self-evident, naive to think that they wouldn't. Um, what, what is going to happen? Like where, where are we headed over the next, and I don't know what timeline you yeah. think is most relevant. So you've got sort of near term in the next, call it 20-ish years. But then what are we talking about in the next like 100 to 200 years? What, where yeah. do we go? So, so when you go, and I write about this in the book. If you go to the Olympics, and, I, and as I've uh, as I've done, you you see different forms of societal organization competing with each other. Like when you see when I went to the in the, the Beijing Olympics, I went to the volleyball. Um, uh, uh, I think it was the bronze medal game. It was the U.S. versus China. And when I saw the Chinese team, it was just clear that everybody had been selected based on some criteria when they were a little kid. Like all, all the, all I don't know all the things, but all the setters were like the same body build, all the spikers were the same body build. They clearly kind of searched around and they had a, and for the Americans, we had all these different people of different shapes and sizes and someone had like extra spirit and somebody tried really hard and, 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 it, and, and then we competed and somebody won because it was two forms of just of societal organization competing with each other. That's what's going to happen, uh, even if we are as, as collectivist as I've as I've articulated. That's what's going to happen with us. And so, just like there was Athens and Sparta in ancient in ancient Greece, let's just imagine that you're Sparta. Actually, we can make it make it Athens because this is based in part on Plato's Republic, where everybody had a had a role. But you could imagine a society that had identified um, that we that that believes that outliers, which is, is probably true for lots of societies, that outliers are the ones who push the envelope of, of possibility. And so for our physicists and our abstract mathematicians, we want them to be like superstars. And our athletes, we want them to be superstars. And rather than leave everything to chance, we're gonna screen every embryo um, of people who have the potential to be born. Um, once we make the selection of which embryos are, are implanted. We're going to have a pool of people who have the genetic possibility of being the, the Einsteins or the Usain Bolts or w- whatever the thing is. You could also add a, um, uh, a, 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 a genome editing 
a genetic engineering component where you maybe make a couple of changes to those embryos to maybe give them some kind of boost or prevent some kind what, of what are the boosts though that you think people are going to go for so if the i forget the exact quote but it's something like the science fiction writer's job is not to imagine the car but to imagine the traffic jam mm -hmm. what what are the what thing is it going to be intelligence is it going to be well, athletic prowess like i think it'll depend but there's all kinds of things that people want there's the general things that people want to live longer healthier uh more immune to disease people want to be tend to want to be smarter as long as it doesn't come with a, a high cost. And my guess is people will probably find that it, it does. Um, and um, so I think, I think it, it won't be kind of rocket science, but then there'll be outliers and then there'll be individuals and societies who say, well, my, my life is based on being X. And you're going to have to make those, if you're talking about genetic engineering, um, you're going to have to make those decisions. Those decisions will have to be made for you before they're they're born. And you know, people always point to the movie Gattaca about, well, isn't that so terrible that everyone's been identified for their roles? And and certainly that's the theme of the movie. But when I saw that movie, I had a different outcome. It's like, God, this guy Ethan Hawke, he's not genetically enhanced. He's snuck his way into the space program with all these people who are genetically enhanced, I, if I'm in a space program, I don't want some non-enhanced person being a liability because their bone structure um, isn't able to resist the radiation in, in space. I mean, I just think that we may become super specialized and we may want, or for our survival, we may even need people to play a certain role. I mean, how much of our lives now are dependent on innovations by people like Alan Turing or John von Neumann or other of these kind of giants who opened up possibilities that we now occupy. Like maybe society would be better off if we had more of those guys. I mean, or maybe it would be better off if we had less of those guys. And I don't think, I don't think we know, but we do know is that these different systems are going to be competing with each other. Uh, and as happens with evolution, we're going to be constantly throwing up variation. And some of that variation is going to prove good within the context of a particular environment, and some isn't. And over time, we're going to know. Do you think we will slide towards uniformity or will we slide towards massive diversity? It's a great question. On one hand, you can understand uniformity because if you ask the average person, what do you want? People tend to want the same things, which is why when people go to sperm banks and they have a choice of what they want, you know, a lot of people are picking, well, I want tall, I want this, I want, I want that, even though like there's nothing inherently better about being tall than being short. It's just, it's rewarded in our, in our society. In, in Ewok village, they hated the, the tall people. Um, and so, on the other hand, so you could imagine all these social pressures that every no, because no one's going to want to. Well, I'll 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 invest in diversity by having a kid who's got a greater likelihood of dying of some terrible genetic disorder. People say, well, geez, I don't want that. Let let somebody else be the carrier of diversity, even though that that gene that may increase the risk of some you know terrible disease may also have some benefit that we don't even know about. 
On the other hand, you could imagine, I mean, we're a social species, so if I had to bet, I would bet on uniformity. Um, but you could imagine that people say, well, geez, I'd like to be blue. You know, I'd like to you have whatever, whatever the thing is. Um, you could imagine people wanting to do it, and if it was meaningful enough, maybe it could have some kind of, of evolutionary impact. Yeah, when I think that there will be values will come into play again, and what you're going to see is the people who value, um, you know, people's temperament tends to break into certain sort of archetypes, yeah. and I think each archetype is going to optimize for the thing that they value, whether that's creativity, um, whether that's intelligence. You will certainly see parents, if we're talking about germline stuff, you see parents trying to optimize for their kids not struggling. So I want my kid to have it better than I did. Right. So if you were artistic, but maybe you flirted with like bipolar disease, then your your parent wouldn't want you to struggle in that same right. way. So it'll be interesting to see how. Um, that will fluctuate. And I think while we'll, we'll probably oscillate towards uniformity and then back out, because what will happen is if everybody optimizes for intelligence, then you run into no matter how intelligent you are, you know, you're you're all sort of you're just now competing against each other. Right. So yeah. then how do you stand out? Oh, you stand out by being more creative or, you know, so it'll be really interesting. I think even if people try to game the system, they'll inherently run up against the weaknesses of uniformity or they'll run up against, well, I wanted them to, you know, be different and for there to be diversity, but there's a huge price to pay. And now my kids are struggling in a way. And so those kids end up rebelling and they have the most conforming children because they didn't want them to struggle the way they did. So it feels to me like you're going to see, you know, that sort of oscillating pattern. Yeah, you, you can't. super easy to see. Yeah. But the other thing is that there could easily be funnels. I mean, one of the reasons why humans, we're more similar to each other, to all humans than say chimpanzees are to other chimpanzees is that our ancestors have gone through these very narrow funnels where almost all Homo sapiens died because of starvation or climate change or, or whatever, and a tiny number of them survived. And so the genetics of those tiny numbers who survived became all of our genetics. So what you're imagining, which I think makes sense, is humans living on Earth or living on Earth in this environment. But you could just as easily imagine that there's some group of us, which I think will certainly happen, that leaves this planet and goes and colonizes someplace else. And so that's kind of the beginning of that funnel. And who those people are, let's say it's all the people who've given themselves um, blue, blue skin. There'll be an entire species of you know, blue homo sapiens, and that, that's just going to be their reality and just like us, when we when we see those evolutionary charts and we have, you know, Ramapithecus and Homo erectus and Homo habilis, it's like, oh yeah, those, those those creatures, which is how we see them, that used to be us, but now we're this. Now we're Homo sapiens, and I think these guys, these Homo blueians, will say, oh yeah, we the, the, see the, see those those pale people on the chart. That used to be us. And we passed through this funnel, just like our ancestors passed through the funnel. And now this is us in this new reality. And whatever those, those attributes, they'll be, that will be them. One thing that I think that most everyone will strive towards will be immortality. Um, agree with that? Disagree with that? And do you think that there are any um, inherent problems with striving for like truly living forever? 
So I'm all for it. I mean, I, if I could do it, I, I certainly would. There's nothing wrong with it. A lot of people say, well, what about overpopulation and whatever? I, I think it's totally fine. I just don't think it's achievable with the in the physical bodies that we that we have. Um, and even if you start living a really long time, just the law of averages, you know, uh, gets you. It's like I didn't know penguins could get rabies or whatever. It's like that 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 outlier will eventually get you. Um, but um, so I, I, you know, I don't think it's achievable. I think, but I think that striving for it is is a good idea. I mean, I'm I'm pretty deeply involved in the the science of of human life extension, and a lot of people think, oh, it's like Elon Musk or, um, uh, sorry to use foul language on your show, but that dickhead um, Adam Newman. Um, but um, Who, who's Adam Newman? Why founder, is he that dickhead? The founder of WeWork. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah. Did he do something dodgy? He, well, he had a whole thing of of wanting to to uh, control the science of uh, of human life extension, and then um, huh? and then use it to go to people with like billion dollar companies and says, "I want to buy your company, and I'll I'm going to pay you one dollar, but I'm going to give you the secret of human life extension." Um, in exchange for your company. Actually, I, I heard him say this. What? Yeah, you know, it was it was insane. It was insane. And so um, so there's a lot of crazy people, but there's a real science of human life extension, which is really great because the, the these terrible diseases, cancer, heart disease, dementia, that we fear are all correlated with aging. And so if we can slow the process of biological aging, we can do more to fight cancer and these other terrible diseases, I think even then we can by investing directly into mitigating those diseases. Because if you eliminate all of cancer, um, we only live about three years longer. But if you can slow the process of aging, we can live hopefully much longer. But it's 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 a new field of science. But I think like I, I think it's great for us to to strive for for immortality. And I also think it's it's a some people say, and I disagree with this, that it's the finitude of life that gives it meaning. I mean, everything is the meaning of life gives it meaning. I mean, there are all kinds of people who are finding meaning in all in all sorts of things, and death could be it for somebody, but it doesn't have to be so for everybody. What do you think? So, if nature had a conceivable answer, which was to like, there's a jellyfish that is immortal. Mm -hmm. So we know there's nothing sort of biologically necessary. Humans could have lived for, or maybe you said that you actually think that we couldn't in our current form. So what is yeah. it in our, in our current biology that makes us different than the jellyfish? Why couldn't we live forever? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned the jellyfish in my most recent novel, eternal Sonata. That's mm -hmm. the, the immortal jellyfish is actually part of the of the theme and the science to crack the code of, of immortality. So the reason why I think it's going to be hard for um, humans to uh, to live forever, I mean, the, the, that immortal jellyfish, it goes from kind of adult back into a polyp and adult and, and polyp. So by that standard, we kind of do live forever in the sense that, um, you know, an adult male and an adult female, they give their cells to each other and then it reconstitutes as a newborn baby who's not... 50 or 60, but but uh, uh, but but zero. But why we in this exact in this physical form, in my view, is just there's we can extend healthy life. I think that will definitely be possible, and we're already doing it. 
Um, but there's too many damn parts. I mean, I just think that this is when I, I talked about theology before. Like, I, I love the intelligent design people who would say, like, oh, my God, you know, the body is so complicated. There's so many moving parts. And if one thing goes wrong, um, then you would die. There must only God could come up with that system. And I just think, well, I don't call that intelligent. That's shit design. Here's, here's an intelligent design. You have two parts. There's the body and there's the head. The head screws off. When the body gets old, you just screw off the head and screw it back on another body. Like that's that makes sense sense to me. I just think that that right now there's so many different systems um, that are. It's like you have a car. You know, like cars don't last forever. Um, even well maintained cars, because there's 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 always something. Would it be possible conceivably to replace each part? one at a time, and that's what's happening now with these these um, synthetic genomes of very sim you know, single cell organisms where they're just, they're replacing one little piece, one little segment of DNA at a time, and they kind of keep doing it until eventually they've replaced the, the, the workings of this single cell organism with basically the exact same code that it had mm. before and maybe some uh, some small differences. But just in this format. And so the question is, could we shift to another format? Um, and to do that, we'd have to find a way of downloading our consciousness. And that's where we're very, very far away. We, we know nothing, next to nothing, about how the, how the brain works. But even if we were to do that, which would be, I don't think we're 100 years away. We may not even be 1,000 years away from that. But let's just say we, we did it, then, it would be more you than you just being dead. Um, but let's say you kind of your consciousness gets transferred into some kind of, of other uh, receptacle, whether it's a computer or, or, or a robot or, or, or whatever. Like I think that that would be you maybe at that moment of transfer. Um, but then that robot is out kind of doing its own thing and, and whatever. And it's just like, it, it's not that our, our brain and our consciousness are totally disassociated from the complexity of our uh, of our biology. So, any long answer, I think we need to explore all those issues. I'm all in. I say we extend life as much as we can in a, in a in a healthy way and strive for immortality. And and that for me, writing books, being on podcasts, which I hope you're you're preserving this for thousands of years. Um, like I think it's all part of that that very human aspiration. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't have kids. Um, I the sense of living forever is. I guess it could come down to like do, creating a work of art that I think is going to live beyond me. But the just the percentage of of things that live more than a couple generations is essentially zero. Yeah. And so I don't take a lot of refuge in that. And when I think about um, there almost certainly are limits to the human body. Well, there are limits to the human body, obviously, now, and they may be truly unovercomable, like you're saying. Um, it makes me wonder about, okay, uploading myself into the cloud, would I even be, would that experience even be recognizable? If I could forget for a second that it would have to be simultaneously the me that exists now dies mm -hmm. and the me that comes online has a sense of continuity. Otherwise, you're still going through the same problem right. that you were trying to avoid, which is I don't want to die. Yeah. So 
when I think about how the, the biology really does make us who we are and something I talk a lot about is you're having a biological experience. And by that, I mean your brain as an organ reacts in a certain way using um, neurochemistry to make you feel a certain way. Your hardwiring makes you act a certain way. So if we're, and you talk about this in Hacking Darwin, we're probably roughly 50% hardwired and then 50% malleable. So if I know that 50% of who I think of as me and this experience that I'm trying to preserve is hardwired and that it's this incredibly complicated interplay between the mushy brain and the microbiome and the way that, you know, my um, vagus nerve is taking, it's like 80% of the vagus nerve is sending body stimulation and communication to the brain. It's not even 50-50. So if it's like my body is making up this huge part of who I am and there's all this sort of real-time feedback between the brain and the body and that 80% goes away as I'm uploaded to the cloud. Now, of course, you could sort of mimic it, but then you start asking questions. Well, do I really want to be limited to the way that I am now or do I, going back into that, like, but don't I really want to optimize a little bit? Don't I want to be smarter? And so then it becomes this question of, you know, what am I really preserving? And look, if I could live forever, I would. Like, that is something I would do in a heartbeat, 100%. Like, I am far more interested in the upside than the downside, but it is like this really sort of tangled up question. And one of the things that I've come to recently, because I used to be really hardcore about, I want to live forever, that's it. And then just asking the, the question of, why don't we live forever? And a quote that I'm haunted by is that science progresses funeral funeral by funeral or one funeral at a time, whatever the exact quote is. And it, it just got me thinking about the way that humans tend to like their belief system begins to calcify and they get stuck in their own way of thinking and they're not able to challenge themselves. And so I didn't know about the jellyfish that it, it sort of reverts to a polyp and then back mm. out. That makes a lot of sense. Like in some ways you have to break out of who you are, the way you think um, in order to renew. And that sense of renewal, I thought, is probably one of the things that nature has blindly, but still optimized for. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, and, and certainly I, I think that it, let's just say that all of a sudden you or I or somebody else was granted, I don't know by whom, um, immortal life. And you say, all right, well, I knew this stuff. I did it for 100 years. And now I'm going to I'm going to reset. And it doesn't mean you kind of reset by wiping out your brain. But I, I just think that we'd, we'd kind of figure out some kind of cultural way to, to keep growing. But I think that the basic issue is that we're, like I said in the beginning, we're, we are just animals. And, and we have these biological evolutionary imperatives uh, of just to kind of keep going without any kind of rhyme or reason. It's just, it, it's just kind of built in. And so um, it's good news and the bad news. I mean, the good news is um, that nature wants us to procreate and creates all these pleasures and other things that, that push us to, uh, to procreate. Um, but then after we're done, it's not like that nature had any real incentive to kind of keep us around past reproductive age. It wasn't against it. It wasn't for it. The good news is because it wasn't heavily selected against, it creates more malleability. I mean, if there's like, we are, we're heavily, um, selected for needing to breathe oxygen. Uh, if we if we said all right we're gonna try to change that in humans it's basically another species and and we, I don't think we could do it 
but nature's kind of hasn't really in any meaningful way given a shit about whether we live to 40 or 80 or 100 or whatever. And so at least it creates malleability. When I mean, we look at different um, examples of the animal world, there's some of these long-lived animals, Greenland sharks and some turtles and, and other things, naked mole rats. And we can just say, well, what are some of the lessons? And a lot of it is, is slowing metabolism, which we can do. Some people can do it with lifestyle, but then there are different drugs that people are experimenting with called like metformin and rapamycin and nicotinamide and, and others that are trying to kind of trick our bodies into going into that, that low metabolism kind of screensaver mode. Yeah, that stuff is interesting. Whether that'll bear fruit or not is a, another question. And yeah. you want to talk about making me nervous in terms of taking an exogenous substance that's slowing down my metabolism. It's like, what are the things that we don't know about the consequences of that? I'm, I'm, um, I'm, that totally, certainly... I'm totally with you on that. Because people, like I write about this stuff and I know lots of the, of the researchers and people say like, well, what are you taking? And I say, well, I'm, I'm not taking anything. These are, are, I'm taking exercise and fruits and vegetables. <laughs> Um, because these are, are like systemic drugs. I'm not against taking systemic drugs, but like you said before, I don't want to be the first guy saying, like, <clears throat> like I heard on Joe Rogan that NMN is <laughs> helps you live longer. <laughs> I'm going to take that. But I think that you know, I, I want to be the 10,000th person or the 50,000th person to take a, an, an intervention, and, and then by all means, let's let's do it because it's not like it's not like just fruits and vegetables and exercise are going to get you that much more. Um, mm. But I, let's, I, I, I'm all for the scientific method and figuring out what are the hacks and doing them safely. Yeah. Speaking of hacks, the book Darwin, um, Hacking Darwin starts with you freezing your sperm. Yes. What is your advice to people on that? Um, yeah. And why did you do it? So first with the advice, everybody, I mean, unless you already have kids and don't want any more, um, if you are going to have kids at some point, freeze your, definitely freeze your sperm and probably freeze your eggs. Um, because why the difference? Well, just because sperm, you know, average guy, I mean, it's a look like a little bit of money. You go there, they basically stick you in a broom closet. They give you some dirty magazines. They give you a little plastic receptacle. It's like, you know, so the, the only it's like it's like the plus minus. Like plus, it's like, well, that wasn't that bad. Minus, it's like some money. It's not a huge amount of money. For a woman, as at least in the, in the current system, you go, you have to take pills or shots. You have to have a you know, semi-invasive surgical uh, procedure with some level of, of anesthetic. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a bigger deal than it is um, for a guy. But the reason why I think why I did it and why I think everybody should do it is I think that we're moving towards this form of procreation anyway. We're moving, uh, we're, we're going to be a sexually reproducing species, but just less so through the act of sex. And if you're going, if we're going to do it anyway, why not freeze your eggs or, or sperm when you are a young, as young and, and healthy as, as possible? And even if you do it and it's wrong and you don't need it, well then just throw it away. I mean, so it seems like the, the, the upside is potentially huge and there's the downside is relatively small. It's a bigger downside for women than, than, uh, than for men. So I tell everybody to do it. 
And in the book, you talk about doing it as young as you can. Why, why does that matter? Just so that, that at a certain age, uh, it's not necessarily always as absolute young as, as you can, but there are kind of peak ages for men and for women. Uh, I don't remember it exactly, but my guess is men is around 20 and women is around, uh, around 25. And it's just that our, our bodies start to take on mutations with age through exposures. And um, some of those mutations are passed on to offspring through our eggs and our and our sperm. So it's just you if you're going to freeze, you may as well do it when you're at your reproductive peak. Hmm. That makes sense. Jamie, I think that is the perfect place to yeah. tap out as people now they have a mission. They need to run out and get this stuff frozen. Yeah. Dude, thank you so much, man. Uh, I, I just could not have been more into your book. I'm super excited to see what else you do, both on the fiction and the nonfiction side. So, my man, thank you. And where can people find you? Where can they pick up the book? Yeah, that's great. So uh, they can find me at my website, jamiemetzel.com. Uh, you can also go to the hackingdarwin.com site to learn more about the book. And you can pick up the book there. And given that most of us are living virtual life, you can go to your local bookstore, wear a mask. Um, and then if you want to learn more about One Shared World, you can go to oneshared.world. Awesome. All right, guys, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys. Thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.